you make thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars every two weeks, but you bring it eight hundred twenty-nine dollars home. What I'm gonna live off? I can't live off eight hundred twenty-nine dollars. Coming up on Carolina Connection, UNC housekeepers are demanding higher pay. Good morning. I'm Brianna Atkinson, and I'm Will Christensen. Also this week, the U.S. Supreme Court hears oral arguments in UNC's affirmative action case. The midterm elections could bring about a new Republican supermajority in the North Carolina legislature. 30% more college students have reported feeling burnt out. UNC students reimagine a traditional Greek play with a North Carolina twist. And the basketball season starts Monday, but some UNC students may be distracted by a different team's success. I was born and raised in football country. Football's been my first love. And I, I always love a good underdog story. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. UNC housekeepers are demanding a raise. Many make $15 an hour, but rising inflation, along with staffing shortages, has left housekeepers financially and mentally strained. Sophie Mallinson reports. This one right here is one of my, one of my baby students. Robin Lee is a UNC housekeeper in Keenan Residence Hall. And she said, bye, Miss Robin. Thank you for making my time at Keenan so wonderful. She's reading one of the many student notes that decorate her door at work, expressing the student's gratitude or even love. But Lee has a hard time feeling the love. The combination of her salary and inflation leaves her feeling overworked and underpaid. Everything is going up high except our paychecks. She's one of a group of UNC housekeepers pushing for a salary of $20 an hour and an end to parking fees for housekeepers. Housekeeping salaries range between $15 and $17 an hour, depending on skill level, with some exceeding this due to special circumstances like legislative increases. You, you make $1,300, $1,400 every two weeks, but you bring it $829 home. What am I going to live off? I can't live off $829. After paying her bills, Lee said she often has just $9 left of a paycheck. $9? I had a check I had $4 left out of it. I got paid two weeks ago. I had $2 left on my check. I had been saving change for six months. I had to take, go home and get that change and put a Ziploc bag and carry it to the credit union so I can have money to get, back, get to work. The workers union at UNC is helping housekeepers express their demands to university administration by organizing events like a rally last month in front of South Building. Union President Trey Anthony says that while North Carolina unions cannot collectively bargain, they can still be effective. We're organizing with one hand behind our back. We cannot force the university to come to the table to us, but we can bring the fight to the university. But the fight might need to go to the state level. The North Carolina Office of State Human Resources sets what are called career bans for many state employees. These bans list the minimum and maximum salary for employees and what they can make at varying levels of their job. So the housekeeper's demands of $20 hourly would put them above what the state has made their maximum salary. To achieve that $20, the state legislature would have to approve an increase to funding that would expand the current career bans. And the last time some of those bans changed was 2018, when the inflation rate was about 2.5%. Today, it's over 8 a gallon of milk costs over a dollar more than it did in 2018. And the career bans as a whole haven't been adjusted since 2013. That means many salaries today are based on the cost of living from nearly a decade ago. 
Lee says the people setting her salary don't know the kind of work housekeepers have to do. So during her break, she showed me some of her weekly responsibilities, like scrubbing bathrooms. Can you cut down on mildew? Or moving heavy furniture. I do this every day. I'm 62 years old. I don't have no reason to be in here doing this every day. And staffing shortages only add to this load. We got, we got somebody's leaving. So me and, me and the young lady that works over in the other building, we got to take care of this building. She's here for another week. That means when I get through doing this big old building, I got to go to the next building. I'm about to cry because it's too much. While the university cannot directly raise the housekeeper's pay, administration can advocate to the state legislature about what they want to see funded. UNC's chief financial officer, Nate Nuffman, says that the university values its housekeepers, and the chancellor has prioritized talking with the UNC system regarding their salaries. But Lee says housekeepers have yet to be fully included in these conversations. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sophie Mountson. On Monday, UNC went to the U.S. Supreme Court to defend its race-conscious admissions policy. A conservative activist group, Students for Fair Admissions, opposes the policy, claiming it unfairly discriminates against white and Asian American students. Chris Kammerer reports. On Halloween morning at the Graham Keenan courtroom at UNC's School of Law, around 20 students listened to a live audio stream of oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Abe Levin, a first-year law student, was in attendance. That was rather fortuitous to have one of the first Supreme Court cases this year be about UNC and the admissions process that, you know, I just went through and all my classmates just went through. What stuck out to you while we were listening? Justice Thomas, he asked the first question for every defense attorney, why should diversity matter at all? It almost seemed like a duh question to them, like why, well, of course it matters, it has so many benefits, why are we asking this in 2022? A Pew Research Center survey earlier this year found that almost 75% of Americans say that race and ethnicity should not be factored into college admissions. Many believe that affirmative action is inherently discriminatory, but there's a disagreement among Supreme Court justices about how to determine whether or not that's true. Justice Alito. What is your response to the simple argument that college admissions are a zero-sum game, and if you give a plus to a person who falls within the category of underrepresented uh, minority, but not to somebody else, you are disadvantaging the latter student. And, and Your Honor, the, you know, that's an that's a excellent point, but the record actually bears out about how, in this case, how the holistic admissions plan does end up operating, where an individualized consideration is being made on a student's own talents, on a student's own achievements. So you're, you're, saying, you're saying that, the, that race in and of itself has no effect at the University of North Carolina? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Okay, then you would that, have no objection to an opinion from this court saying you may not consider race. Corey Liu, a graduate of Harvard Law School who filed an amicus brief supporting SFFA in their case against Harvard, explained Alito's point like this. How can it be both the case that these policies are responsible for getting so many students admitted, and yet it really isn't actually having that much of an effect on anyone's chances of admission, right? So there's sort of a self-contradiction in the arguments that the universities are presenting. The Supreme Court's current precedents hold that race-conscious admissions are permissible because diversity is an important educational value for universities. At another point, Justice Alito likened affirmative action to a foot race, where some runners are given a head start based on their racial background. Justice Sotomayor used the analogy to say that students who come from under-resourced schools, who disproportionately tend to be students of color, start the race at a disadvantage. So what the schools are doing is looking at all the factors to try to put the students at the start 
as equals, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And race is not defining in that. It's not the one factor in any application that makes a difference. There is zero evidence of race playing a decisive factor for any applicant. David Inahosa, one of the lawyers for UNC's case, also highlighted this point. Evidence showed that hundreds of white students with lower combined GPAs and SAT scores were admitted ahead of higher performing black students, Latinx students who went to UNC. And I think that bears the hallmark of this, the type of individualized consideration that this court wanted. Theodore M. Shaw is a law professor at UNC and the director of the Center for Civil Rights. He said that the Supreme Court could go a number of ways in their decision and that there's a chance that Justice Roberts, Kavanaugh, or Barrett might see the need to uphold current precedent and temper the court's ruling. I think the expectation of most people is that they are not going to rule in favor of the institutions or if they let some diversity efforts stand, they probably will make it more difficult to pursue them. Shaw pointed to the legacy of Brown versus Board of Education, the ruling that ended segregation in schools almost 70 years ago, as an example of what might happen now. But I often say that Brown is uh, hallowed. Nobody says they don't support Brown versus Board of Education, but it's hollow because they've effectively gutted Brown and public schools are more segregated now than they have been at any time since Brown was decided. Second year law student Ken Chu, who listened to the live stream on Monday in the UNC courtroom, had this to say in response to SFFA's claim that Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans. That's not to say they're not problems in admissions. I think there are instances of, of discrimination, not because of affirmative action, but because of cultural differences. I think certain schools that use interview processes sometimes will rate Asian students lower because of just differences in the way they perceive you know, and answer questions. Um, so that's a problem, but that's not anything to do with affirmative action. Supreme Court watchers expect the justices to release their decisions sometime around June of next year. In Chapel Hill, I'm Chris Cameron. While campaigning for the midterm elections enters its final days, a major concern for North Carolina voters lies in the state's legislature. Republicans only need five seats, three in the House and two in the Senate, to regain a supermajority for the first time since 2018. Walter Ranke reports. Robert Reeves II from Chatham County serves as the House Minority Leader for the Democrats. He is running for his fifth term and is in the closest race of his career. He says he is running to protect the advancements he has made during his time in the legislature. I can candidly say my run at this time is really to give people the same opportunity that I had. Any successes that somebody may see that I've had in life or feel that I've had in life came because people who didn't know me made investments in me. Reeves' opponent is Walter Petty, a longtime Chatham County Commissioner. One of the things Petty is running on is keeping the power of the governor in check, including vetoes. Petty didn't respond to our interview request. Governor Roy Cooper has used his veto power more than any other North Carolina governor on 75 bills during his time in office. But his vetoes haven't always been successful. From 2013 to 2018, the Republicans had a supermajority in the legislature, meaning they controlled two-thirds of both houses and had the power to override any veto from Cooper. Republicans have a chance to regain a supermajority this year. They only have to win five seats to do so. Jeff DeBerry, the Capitol Bureau Chief for WUNC, says that a handful of races will make the difference. This is going to come down, I suspect, based on the reporting I've done, the analysis uh, that I've done, to a number of suburban and ex-urban districts. So like, we're not talking about the heart of Raleigh or Wilmington or 
Winston-Salem or Charlotte, but we're talking about districts kind of on the periphery of all those cities. Mark Cavallero, a Republican, sits outside the Carolina Inn in Chapel Hill after attending a Board of Visitors meeting. He is running for a toss-up district for the State Senate in White County. Seeking his first term in the legislature, he says that he is running for the future of North Carolina. I believe in North Carolina and I want to make North Carolina a better place. And I want to make sure the future generations, like my kids, I've got three kids, I want to make sure that they know North Carolina as the great place that, that I knew it to be, the great place to grow up, great place to start a business, have a family. So for me, it's really about the future. His opponent, Sidney Batch, was appointed to the seat in 2021 after Senator Sam Searcy retired. She lost her re-election bid for the House in 2020. On her website, she says that she wants to build a North Carolina that works for all of its citizens. She did not respond to our interview request. The two races have something in common. Negative ads from both parties have become the norm. Reeves says that the negativity is driving the two sides apart. Now you've just gotten this incredible polarization to the point where somehow the letter behind the person's name in some people's mind completely defines who they are. Despite the increased polarization, Cavallaro says that he would like to see the two parties work together. Well, I think that in the future, regardless of if we have a supermajority or we don't, to me that, that's not really the important thing. I mean, I'd love to see it, uh, but the important thing is can we work together for common goals? But if Republicans are able to win a supermajority, they would not have to work with the Democrats to pass legislation. Reeves, who served during the last Republican supermajority, says that the prospect of another one worries him. I mean, the, the last two years to me is how it should be working. You've seen a lot more bipartisan work in the last two years. But in a supermajority, you saw none of that. And, and that is my concern. And that's why I think nobody should be pushing for a supermajority. With Democrats unlikely to win a majority for themselves, this election likely comes down to two scenarios. The continuation of a divided government or a supermajority for Republicans. Political reporter Jeff Tabiri says that a supermajority could have big implications going into next year. In 2023, they're going to be able uh, to have a much more likely scenario under which they can pursue legislation that pertains to abortion and firearms and even education funding, but they can do it really without the voice, the input, the objections of the governor. With early voting already in full swing, voters are deciding whether Republicans will get that unilateral power. In Chapel Hill, I'm Walter Rinke. The U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade this summer has put abortion in the spotlight this election season. Republicans could restrict access beyond the current 20-week ban if they achieve a supermajority in the North Carolina legislature. Madison Ward has more. The abortion ban is the first reduction of abortion access in North Carolina since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in late June. Riley Baker, a UNC graduate student, volunteers at an abortion clinic in Charlotte as a clinic escort and defender and is worried about what the 20-week bans means for women. She said she and the patients are experiencing more stress since the ban's reinstatement. Obviously, as a woman, that's something that you have to think about, especially at our age, about what to do if you suddenly have an unwanted pregnancy. And that's something that me and a lot of my female friends have have talked about lately, which is kind of a scary thing to think about. Baker said she believes any kind of abortion ban is dangerous. When someone has an abortion this late, it's a lot of the time because they like have new information about the health of their baby or their own health, or they've had delays in being able to access abortion care because of problems with money, travel, like maybe bans in other states. 
Baker added, however, that only a small minority of people get abortion bans after the 20-week mark. I think the 20-week ban is just the start of bans that could potentially happen in North Carolina, and I definitely think that even something as extreme as six weeks could happen in the future. Not all students oppose the abortion ban, however. Senior Louis Nazarian is a member of UNC Students for Life. He said the organization is a non-political, non-religious group that believes life begins at conception and lasts until natural death. We believe that there is a lot more at play here than just the rights of the woman, woman, but also the rights of the child. And also we believe that in a lot of scenarios, most scenarios, I think that the father should have a say as well, and that it is the, the, the child in the mother's womb is the child of both the mother and the father. And so I think that that includes you know, a right to that decision, but also includes a level of responsibility when that baby is born. Nazarian said their group believes the 20-week abortion ban was reasonable and morally acceptable. I believe that a woman should have the right to her own body, but the, the thing that we often argue is that when we're talking about an unborn child, it is not just her body at play. Duke physicians discussed the effects of the Supreme Court abortion decision on access to reproductive health care for women in a June media briefing. Gynecologist and obstetrician Dr. Beverly Gray said barriers to abortion heighten disparities which already exist in the country. She added they also disproportionately affect communities of color. In our country, black women are already facing a maternal mortality rate that's three times higher than that of, of white women. And when we limit access to abortion, we force people to carry pregnancies to term and face those risks. Gray noted she expects a large influx of people will cross state lines to receive an abortion in North Carolina. We've already seen that volumes have increased over these past few months as more restrictive bans have been put in place in states like Texas and Oklahoma. There is sort of this tidal wave effect of patients in those states going to nearby states and then in those nearby states there are delays in care because all the appointments are taken from folks out of state. Um, and so we are anticipating that there will be an increase in need uh, for patients in the Southeast and um, North Carolina may be the, the first spot. On September 13th, Republican Senator from South Carolina Lindsey Graham unveiled a bill that, if passed, would mandate a federal ban on abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy with very few exceptions. From Chapel Hill, this is Madison Ward. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Brianna Atkinson. And I'm Will Christensen. A new study found that burnout is increasing among college students and that they're turning to unhealthy coping methods. Tejon Wilson has the story. UNC senior Allison Capers majors in sociology with a minor in African-American and African diaspora studies. She says she spent the last two semesters completing her prerequisites for pre-nursing. With classes for her major, a minor, and the pre-nursing program, Capers' schedule had allotted for little free time. I have to rather withdraw from like one class to lighten it up a little bit or like I'm really going to have to like withdraw from the semester. Like I really feel like I'm not going to be able to make it like my mental health. Capers quickly felt the pressure of the workload and her physical activity and social life took a hit. She didn't have time to cook or engage in her daily Pilates. When hanging out with friends, she could not be fully present because work was in the back of her mind. Capers says she never experienced burnout before college. And when she finally did during junior year, she had to make a decision. Like I was just like, every time I was waking up, it was like academic stuff. Like I was just like, it's a book, it's a reading. 
For Capers, it took self-compassion to say enough is enough. Burnout is a common condition among college students, but not all know how to reclaim their time. At Ohio State University, students were surveyed in August 2020 and April of 2021. Chief Wellness Officer Bernadette Malink found that the number of college students experiencing burnout has increased by 30% in one year. The chronicity of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic was tough on everybody. And it was also, as you know, complicated by external events happening throughout the country. Malink says that the last two and a half years was character building for most, if not all Americans. The study was also conducted on faculty and staff at Ohio State. She says that the social unrest in the country, along with the ongoing pandemic, was bombarding. Malink also says colleges everywhere can create change by prioritizing mindfulness. Equipping our students with evidence-based cognitive behavioral skills, mindfulness skills, skills that we know are protective, we've got to integrate these throughout our curriculum. Malink defines burnout as emotional exhaustion, and there is a huge risk factor for depression. It can show up as fatigue, cynicism, and anxiety. UNC senior Abigail Whittington studies broadcast journalism and is balancing three part-time jobs. Despite the opportunities gained from the work that she's done, Whittington is aware that burnout is a real problem. I think it was just I was taking on too much and acting like I wasn't. So continuing to attend social events and social outings, um, continuing to make time for people and things that I don't necessarily have time for. So there was no time that was mine ever. Whittington says she hit a point and realized that everything she was doing was no longer sustainable for her. She grounds herself in meditation, taking a walk, and prioritizing her sleep. It really just came down to me having to make that decision for myself and committing to completely changing the narrative. And like now I, I still have a very demanding internship and a very demanding schedule and school schedule, but because of the strict boundaries that I've set with myself and with the people that I live with and with my support system, um, I think it's that's why I, I'm in such good shape for senior year. While burnout is severe, it is possible to recover. Capers and Whittington were able to make lasting changes to support their well-being. It's important for students to put their mental health first and take proactive steps to prevent burnout. In Chapel Hill, this is Tejan Wilson. While North Carolina football is 7-1 and could clinch the Coastal Division this week, the men's basketball team was announced as the preseason number one team in the country. Carolina Connections' Noah Monroe wanted to find out if students are more invested in the football team or the season that the basketball team could potentially have. In the midst of a season that no one saw coming, North Carolina football is in a peculiar position. They're entering a period of time where they have to compete for the attention of students with the basketball team. Usually it's no contest. UNC is known for being a basketball school, but the football team is having their best season in seven years when they went 11-1 in the regular season, making the ACC championship. The Charles could potentially cleanse for a spot in the championship as early as this weekend, but it's more likely they won't until next week. However, the basketball team begins their season next Monday with students clamoring for front row seats. And it's not just another season. On October 17th, the Associated Press released a preseason top 25 for basketball, with the Tar Heels claiming the top spot, getting the attention of the student body. Senior Riley Lachance is happy about how the football team is playing, but the potential that the basketball team has is just too good to overlook. 
So I'm very excited about the future of UNC football and the way this season is looking. But Carolina basketball is coming off of a national championship game. We're ranked number one going into the 2023 season. And we've returned four out of our five starters. Obviously, I'm very excited about Carolina basketball. Meanwhile, other students like Siobhan Shaw and junior Zach Buckler are all in on football for different reasons, though. This year, Shaw's able to experience a good football team in person instead of watching on TV like he had to do in 2020 when UNT made the Orange Bowl. The last three years, our best year has been the COVID year, which none of us really got to experience fully. Um, obviously, the Orange Bowl was amazing, but the other, three, other two years, we went like three and three at this time. But now, after the Notre Dame game, I don't think many people had hope. And having the ACC championship in play, that's just something I honestly never thought I would experience at UNC, but I'm so glad I am. For Buckler, it's due to his Ohio roots and growing up, watching football, as well as the underdog mentality the team has. I was born and raised in football country. Football's been my first love. And I, I always love a good underdog story. You know, no one gave this team a shot heading into this year. Um, everything around this team said they'd struggle to be bowl eligible, and we've just seen them prove everybody wrong. Other students, like junior Andrew Best, are on the fence. I think with how the football team's playing right now, there's like a buzz around the team, and I'm just you know, really excited with how the team's going to go going forward. But I guess when the season starts, that might change, but for now, all in on the football team. With two dominant teams having their seasons collide, it gives a lot of things for UNC students to do but also divides their attention. With basketball season two days away and the football team having two top 25 matchups left in the season, it will be interesting to see who students show up for. From Chapel Hill, this is Noah Monroe. The Greek play Naya is being showcased for the first time at UNC by the Department of Dramatic Art. With a reimagined North Carolina setting, the production addresses social issues like climate change, religious extremism, and women's rights. Reagan Allen has more. In Playmakers Theater, the cast of the upcoming production, Naya, rehearses. The director, actors, stage manager, and others work together to go over lines and positioning on stage. I have no better authority. No, I have no better authority. <laughs> okay, fine, we'll just here, right? Laura Westray is a dramatic arts major playing Nestra, Agamemnon's mother. We rehearse every day from 6 to 10, except for Fridays and Saturdays, um, sometimes longer and just being able to devote like your whole self into something while also being a student and devoting your whole self to that. It can be a lot to handle, but it's really rewarding and gratifying. Actors in the production develop skills by working on facial expressions, movements, and vocals to prepare for roles. I've been working on like character development and um, how the character presents herself and her physicality and all that, and I already feel very connected to Nastra and the role. Overcoming a mental barrier is important to show business as well. I'm like beyond words excited, but um, I'm nervous because this is my first time acting in a college show. They got to here, so we had our base last night. Everybody got called back in. What happened? Naya is the, it's the retelling of the Greek tragedy Iphigenia, and it's set in some time in the future or maybe the past. Audiences don't really know, 
but um, I think a large part of the story is its unknowns. So we're kind of revolving around the unknown and, you know, diving into what it means to deal with unknowns and deal with storms and troubles and difficulties that we face in life. Liddy Wade, Hope Hansen, and Carolina Marquez play chorus women one, two, and four in the upcoming production. In this version, it's kind of like a modern take. So we are the chorus, but we're chorus women and we're, we're church ladies um, in the South and kind of our whole deal is gossip. And that's kind of how the plot progresses a lot of the time is, is us explaining what's going on. There's an overall, I guess, critique to what humans are doing about like ignoring climate change and just blindly believing in things and not really questioning some of societal practices that we have and just you know being blind to things that are right at our face and we're ignoring. Context is really important and how classics aren't just old and discarded and don't matter anymore. Naya really shows why these stories are still so important even though it's been hundreds of years. I think it does that very well and very effectively. Naya is showcasing November 17th through 21st at the Playmakers Repertory Company Theater. In Chapel Hill, I'm Reagan Allen. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pakamian. I'm Brianna Atkinson. And I'm Will Christensen. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.